it used to be, at some point in time, you could be a charismatic leader and have no accountability to the people because people would follow you because you were charismatic. And there isn't anything wrong having charisma, but being a charismatic leader under the study of leadership says that I, as the leader, will do things that benefit me. And those individuals in my organization hopefully will benefit from it and they'll come along with me. And as soon as they no longer benefit from that or they don't care, then they can go somewhere else because I'm still going to go on my path and I expect you to come along with me. Well, that type of leadership is gone. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. We're back here today with Dr. Troy Hall coming to us from Charleston, South Carolina. And our title is Building a Cohesion Culture, Strategies to Empower Your Team and Enhance Your Performance. Well, certainly Dr. Hall is a believer that culture eats strategy, not only for breakfast, but all day long. And he's gonna share with us today five elements of a learning organization, what they mean and how to actually live them in your organization. He's going to talk about critical elements of leadership around emotional intelligence, self-awareness, vulnerability, and authenticity. Dr. Troy is going to talk with us about the myriad of elements that go into the post-COVID and largely remote workforce. It is a conversation that will help fuel your leadership and your culture and your organization. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. I am so excited with our guest today, and no offense to whatever he's going to say, but I'm excited because we have Dr. Troy Hall here coming to us from Charleston, South Carolina. And if you know me, you know that Charleston is my favorite city in the entire world. Beat Paris, beat London, all of it. So I'm already thrilled just to have some Charleston energy here. And Dr. Troy Hall, man, he has done a lot and he has brought so much wisdom. He is an author, radio host, global speaker talent retention strategist consultant. Now listen to this creds, folks. He's been on the Today Show, ABC, Beyond the Business Radio Show, CEO World. He is a culture strategist. He's, I never knew this. He's got a doctorate. I haven't seen this before in global leadership and entrepreneurship. He's been around the globe teaching leaders about culture, cohesion, top talent. And he has written a number of books. And I'm going to close with the books because I love these book titles. One is Cohesion Culture, Proven Principles to Retain Your Top Talent. And here's the one we are going to talk about. He was number one in business and professional humor category for Fanny Rules, a mother's leadership lessons that never grow old. So we are going to hear from Dr. Troy's mom today. Not directly. We're not doing any channeling today, not on this episode. He's got dozens of decades of, of experience 
dozens of decades. That's funny. He's not that old. He's a hundred. <laughs> well, that was that was really funny because if people could see us, they would. I would have to say, "Don't let the hair color fool you." So, yeah. I don't know. hey, at least you have hair. Dr. I'm sorry. Troy. Let me correct that. Together, we have dozens <laughs> yeah, I mean, of decades of experience. Doctor Troy himself has forty years of leadership experience. And it is going to be a wonderful conversation. So welcome, Dr. Troy. Thank you. I guess that 40 years allows me to qualify for three baker's dozen. <laughs> so the other dozens, the two of you are going to have to make up for. I mean, I just, what can I say? Well, I, can cover that. I can cover that gap. <laughs> yeah. I can cover that gap, my friend. And, and Jeff, I like to tell people when I tell them I'm from Charleston, I like to say I'm in Charleston where even when it rains, the sun still shines. That's true. That is very, very true. And it has one of the most beautiful bridges I've ever driven across. And the thing that... The Ravenel, right? The Ravenel. Yeah, the Ravenel. And and most people don't know this, but uh, but really prior to the pandemic, about $7.5 billion worth of tourism comes into Charleston. It's Hmm. one of the reasons why we're the number one tourist destination in the U.S. and we're number eight in the world. I had no idea it was that... That important, or that uh, high. My wife and I absolutely love Charleston. So all of you listeners who, if you haven't been to Charleston, definitely get out there. It's a historic place and phenomenal food, great architecture. It's just a fun place to go. Yeah. You've just made a new friend. So if you need any advice, you can hook me up in social media and <laughs> yeah. say, hey, where, where do I go? I mean, I've got my favorite places I send people to all the time. I should nice. get a kickback, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, part. let's get away from the food for a moment because it's hungry time and let's get back to leadership and mothers. So, Dr. Troy, tell us a little bit about your background story. Well, you know, I like to tell folks, well, first of all, I'm an open book in social media. So if you want to connect with me, it's at Dr. Troy Hall. So if you want to find out the business professional stuff, go there, check it out. But so I, I like to let folks know a little bit about me personally. And that, again, you'll find out more about that with the book. But um, I married my high school sweetheart in 1977. We have two children, six grandchildren. At one point in time in my life, there were four generations of us living together under the same roof. Wow. And that was an experience. So (laughs) prior to my parents passing away, they lived with us. My son and his two children lived with us. And that was during the Great Recession around 2007, 2008. And uh, so all four generations all lived together in the same household. And it was like a small business micro, microcosmic sort of petri dish of things happening all at the same time. It was a great, wonderful experience, um, uh, you know, living through that. So the, uh, the grandkids go from uh, five months old to 20 years old. And, uh, and they, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 27 inches to six foot six. <laughs> There you go. Well, I love the, so, the, the term you coined there, microcosmic. Yeah, it's something there. You know, it was just this, it's a Petri dish of people all living together and communing together. And it, it's really interesting because there's so much of that that actually was relatable to business. And there's so much of business that's relatable to families. Totally. It's one of the things that comes forward in the books that I write, the Cohesion Culture and the Fanny Rules book. It's, it's how I build the family sort of and the personal stories and personal interactions into there to kind of create, um, you know, really a better learning experience. I'm sort of consider myself a metaphorical speaker. Uh, so when I actually do these uh, presentations, I try to make sure that I'm including 
some sort of story because it really helps people understand what you're trying to get across. So everything isn't conceptual. They're actually able to bring it down to a more practical uh, way of doing it. So let me ask, it, it sounds like you're actually suggesting that you can actually have a family-like experience at work? Well, sure, you, you can. <laughs> I mean, but, so here's the difference, though, for me. So my wife sometimes tells me, she says, you I think you actually treat the employees better than you treat us at home. Uh-oh. And so I know that's a whole loaded thing. And, and so one time, you know, I, I just was feeling brave, probably silly on my part, but I felt brave. And I actually said, that's because they don't question me every second of the day. Oh. So, you know, it, it's the dynamics change. So what I also found, too, is that when you go to work, you're funnier than you are when you're at home. Right. <laughs> and then the higher you up on the, the, you are in the organizational ladder when you're at, at work, you're even funnier then. So you say funny stuff in meetings and people are laughing hysterically and you say some of that same same stuff at home and you hear. Crickets. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, well, Dr. Troy, I have to jump in and start with Fanny Rules. <laughs> you know, uh, the book was Fanny Rules, A Mother's Leadership Lessons That Never Grow Old. Tell us about that book. How, why did it come to be and, and what are people going to find in that? Well, when I was 12 years old, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, I grew up in a small, rural, poor town in West Virginia that had its shares of ups and downs, uh, poor economic conditions, limited educational opportunities, and the closest uh, medical facility was about 30 to 45 minutes away. Hmm. Uh, about 50 years ago, when a person was diagnosed with cancer, it was a disaster. Um, individuals typically didn't live. And so we thought mom was going to die. I thought specifically I was going to lose my mom. Uh, but my mom made a few choices. Uh, one of them, she says, I'm going to live life. I'm going to live for however long it is, because I really didn't know how long the good Lord was going to keep me around anyway. I just got a little head, head start on. And so she would teach. And so part of what she, her teaching was for me was that, that my character would be defined by the choices I made, hmm. not by the circumstances I found myself in. So good. We were poor by circumstance, but not by choice. Hmm. And so during that summer of her recovery, I spent a lot of time at her bedside of where she tended to pour in all this wisdom to me. Well, the good news is Fanny lived 43 years after that time. Hmm. Wow. And but she did not uh, end the, the circumstances and the, and, and the tragedy stuff didn't end. Uh, in her late 70s, she was diagnosed with dementia. And from there, she um, continued to, uh, you know, live out through that disease. And, and the, it's horrific what it does for people. Uh, anyone who's had Alzheimer's or deals with Alzheimer's or individuals can realize it's a, it's a horrific situation. Uh, um, but mom was not alone because my wife uh, chose to create a situation to uh, have my parents come and live with us. Hmm. So she took care of my mom and dad in ways in which I could never do it. She loved on them like they were her own parents. I'm extremely grateful for everything that she did. Words can never express the quality of life that she provided them in the final phase of their life. Hmm. So as Alzheimer's stole mom's memories and stole her life, this book was an opportunity for me to pay tribute to her wisdom and her legacy and give back those stories. 
So there's 31 teachable moments wrapped around nine rules that uh, can be shared now with a whole new generation of people, uh, can be shared with uh, family, friends, colleagues, other people. And, I, and the, the, her advice was great for backyard to boardroom. And so I figured, why not put this out there? And so the, my proceeds of the sale of the book, Fanny Rules, uh, will benefit the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and so we're very, very happy to do that. And we really just wanted to make, I really wanted to make sure that I was introducing Fanny to a whole new generation who might need a little Fanny of their own. <laughs> well, I love that. And I loved uh, th this idea. It was a tribute to mom. And I, I saw this note that someone, someone on your journey told you you didn't have the talent to write. Yeah. Yes. And, and Fanny, your mom's comment to you was, it's not the successes or failures that shape your life. It's how you handle them. And that sounds like similar to what you said about the choices we have versus the circumstances. So I asked, I bring that up to say, failure is such an interesting topic in leadership because most leaders talk about the importance of failure. Our experience is very few organizations create a culture where failure and learning from it is encouraged. So what have you found and, and what are you helping companies do around that topic of failure? Well, good. So the first thing is, is that failure is ever, is only defined as never trying or quitting and giving up. Yes. That's it. That's failure, right? Aside from that, it's a learning experience. And so part of what I do is, um, so Peter Senge, S-E-N-G-E, in about 1990, he had this philosophy. Most people look him up today, they'll find that he had these five modules of, of thinking that he puts into place, systems thinking and so forth. And that's what he's more known for. He has this little eclectic view of, of life of, and looking at a learning organization. So I've adopted these five sort of elements of a learning organization, and it fits really nicely into your question. You know, the first thing is to be generative. So in failure, the idea is that you should continue to learn from what you're doing. So can you be teachable? And one of the first attributes of an effective leader that I have in the Cohesion Culture book and that I reinforce in Fanny Rules is to be teachable. If you have the mindset to be teachable, then it means you're going to be learning something. And mom had this philosophy. She said, she would ask me oftentimes, she says, what are you willing to be wrong about so you can further what's right? Yeah. I was like, now you got to stop mindset. and let that sink in for a moment. That is truly like how you can think about being teachable. Like, will you be wrong? Because when we go into arguments and conversations, we go in so right. We go in so well, like we already know everything that's supposed to happen, got everything all figured out. And it's sometimes the biggest problem with leaders is that they think either they have to know everything or they have to do it all. And that's why I remind uh, leaders that I work with when I do consulting or coaching work, I say, you don't have to know everything. It just needs to be teachable. So if you can be in that mindset to be generative, you'll, you'll get information. Well, I also learned this, you know, when people say that knowledge is power, they haven't finished the rest of the sentence. See, knowledge by itself isn't power. The power occurs when you use the knowledge or the information. Yep. Then it becomes wisdom, and then it becomes practical. Then it becomes possibly common sense. Then it becomes a muscle memory that you'll remember, and you'll do it over and over again because you've taken that information and somehow used it. So, so the power of knowledge is knowing what to use, when to use. And often in, in courses and, and coaching work, I ask individuals, do you want to be a rock or a sponge? So I'm going to ask the two of you now. So assuming that all the information in the world is water, do you want to be a rock 
or do you want to be a sponge? And Craig, we'll start with you since since you don't have the earphones on. And even though nobody can see that, I'm going to start with you first. <laughs> so Craig, do you want to be a rock or a sponge? I like being both. I like to play with ideas, but I also like to absorb them. Okay, good. Craig, uh, Jeff, how about you? Do you want to be a rock or a sponge? Oh, I'm definitely a sponge. So oh, I do have to say, Craig, you are the winner. Because the idea is that you should be both a rock and a sponge. When I said that information, all information in the world is water, sometimes you have to let that water run right over that rock because it's not something that you want to absorb. It's not something you want to do it. Now, Jeff, on the other hand, you are ding, ding, ding a winner because if it's positive energy, positive information you want, then you want to be that sponge. Yeah. Actually, you want to be a, like a, a chamois, right? You want to be able to soak it up, wring it out. It's not wet you can soak up some more stuff and then you can wring it out again and soak it up and then that that's just a great process of being generative and so using those analogies i can help organizations kind of put their minds around it. okay so dr troy so the first part the first element of being a learning organization is being generative so what comes next and and then from there it's important for organizations to be adaptive so this learning organization is first generative being teachable then it's being adaptive and say, can I adapt to the situations and the circumstances that are happening to me? Will I, will I be able to figure that out? And then you have experimentation. So you can experiment with what, with what occurs. And I love this particular example, uh, Jack Welch. And by the way, this was the softer side of Jack Welch, not that aggressive side of Jack Welch that wanted to get rid of the, the bottom 10 every Neutron time. Neutron Jack. Look, yeah. So th this Jack Welch is the softer side of Jack Welch. And so he tells this story and it was in his book, Winning, that he wrote with his wife, Susie. And he tells a story of experimentation. And so he has a situation and he ends up uh, blowing up this laboratory, $16 million laboratory. He thinks he's going to be fired. So he goes into the office of the CEO. He's kind of fumbling all over himself and trying to kind of figure out what he's going to say and kind of like almost acting like he's handing in a resignation and the guy says to him he goes jack what are you doing and jack says well I, you know i just blew up a 16 million dollar lab i just sort of assumed that you were going to fire me and the guy looked at him and said jack i just spent 16 million dollars to train you exactly so interesting perspective of a learning organization and the mindset of the leader now not every organization listening to us has 16 million dollars to spend blowing up a lab just so that we can learn and i'm not suggesting that we kind of do that but the idea is, can you have the mindset to allow some experimentation to occur within the organization, which allows people to fail without them being wrong? So it's, can you be wrong to further something that is right? Um, the fourth element that uh, Senj talks about is uh, diversity of thought. And so it's not really the same today as we hear about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was really about diversity of thought. Will you accept the viewpoints of other people? Now, one of the things I've learned through my travels around the world is that leaders who do not accept diversity of thought, who don't accept the ideas from others, don't understand, really, typically, they don't understand the context or the origin of the idea. And sometimes in a cultural setting, when those leaders are so divisive about their, their situation, I mean, they're so set into this is what it is, they become something that we call ethnocentric thinkers which means that their culture, their way of doing it, their viewpoint is more superior than anyone else. So a good, effective leader in a learning organization will practice cultural relativity, which means that I will understand how the culture context created the situation. 
I will understand how the individual has come up with the idea because I'm going to explore the context, the origin of it, to make sure that I completely understand what's being said to me. Because if you're cultural superior, you're actually evaluating it based on what you know and what you think, not on what the other person knows and the other person thinks. Uh, so, so, Dr. Troy, you said you talked a lot about the knowledge piece and wisdom, and, and I, I want to throw a challenge at you, because what we see in leadership is a lot that leaders lean too much on knowledge in the sense of believing they know everything and that they don't recognize they have a blind spot. So if I believe in my knowledge, then I say, well, I, I know all these things, but there's things I don't know I don't know. So talk about that balance of knowledge and that the awareness, I guess, I guess self-awareness about these blind spots that we have as leaders. Yeah, it really falls into the category of your emotional intelligence. Are you self-aware for yourself? And not only can you use the emotions of yourself and the emotions of others, but you really have a good way to determine you know, the information you know versus what you still need to know. I like to tell people this, two things. One, you cannot be a victor of your future if you're held captive by your past. You're never going to get to the future you want to go to if, if you are stuck in what you already know. And so the future of where you're going sometimes has nothing to do with, with anything that you know, and you don't even know <laughs> what you're going true. to get along the way. I mean, I'm assuming you guys have been in a car uh, you know, trip. You've gone somewhere, and you may have taken out a map, and Kind of went from oh this is where I'm starting to where I'm going right Craig have you done that have you picked up a map and done that and did you know that you were going to run into traffic did you know that you were going to have to you know pull off the road and handle this did you and you might have anticipated it but did you actually know what you would encounter until sure. you did it no no right so that's exactly it so when leaders prepare for that they have to be in that mindset they've got to think about the fact that they can be prepared but they're not going to know everything that happens in that journey and so there's the destination of where they want to go to so it's really about changing the mindset or what I call the influence thinking of the leader and making sure that the, the leader really get, has a good grasp on it. Because the other element of truth is this, is that the truth is in the I am, not the someday I will be. So the individual leader has to claim today who they are going to be and what they're going to, to be like. And then they work toward themselves as a work in progress toward that future. <laughs> it's funny that you say those things because I just finished reading The Martian by Andy Weir. And of course, it's a great movie with Matt Damon. Um, but one of the things he talks about is, you know, he claims himself as I am a space pirate. You know, that was one part. But the other piece is he constantly was running into things that he had to solve, problems that he had to solve or he was going to die. So, you know, he had pretty good incentive to solve some of these problems as he went along. Now, most of us don't have those problems where we're going to die if we don't make this decision correctly or get this thing done. But we can definitely light a fire under ourselves to get moving a little bit faster. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about, let's go a little further with that, Dr. Troy. You're talking about, I feel like you're talking about from that emotional intelligence, self-awareness. This is about leaders being willing to work on themselves from the inside. And yeah. part of that requires vulnerability, which is, I would argue, is one of the hot topics of today. And I don't mean to dismiss it that way. What does vulnerability look like in leadership? Where are you seeing that? How are you working with organizations and leaders on that topic? Well, we're seeing a lot of that ha happening today, just if you look at the social conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, you know, being vulnerable and being exposed to things. I mean, let's face it, some individuals are being held to things that they said 10 years ago. 
that all of a sudden is becoming relevant today. And they have to figure out what to deal with it. So what's happening now is that the leader really has to consider that everything is going to be saved and repeated. This conversation, we're saving. This conversation we put out in the airways is going to be available for people to listen to later. And I think it's important to the leader to make sure that they are authentic. You know, another one of those, uh, what I consider the seven attributes of an effective leader, another one is to have pure intention. You know, be pure, have pure intention about what you're saying and doing. You have to know ahead of time, are you going to hurt somebody or offend somebody? And I like to think to me, everything is fair game unless you're going to hurt somebody. If you're going to hurt them, then stop it. So I see that as being the area of transformation. I see that as being the area of the opportunity for the individual to be transformative in, um, you know, in doing that and, and being accountable. You know, it used to be to some point in time, you could be a charismatic leader and have no accountability to the people. Because people would follow you because you were charismatic. And there isn't anything wrong having charisma, but being a charismatic leader under the study of leadership says that I, as the leader, will do things that benefit me. And those individuals in my organization hopefully will benefit from it and they'll come along with me. And as soon as they no longer benefit from that or they don't care, then they can go somewhere else because I'm still going to go on my path and I expect you to come along with me. Well, that type of leadership is gone. We don't see that today. We, there, there's a whole big change in that. Um, you know, another thing I would also mention to you is that there are several CEOs that have been blasted for their return to work philosophy. That you either return to work or you're going to be a, um, you know, you're going to be a contract employee. Those people who don't return to work, uh, they may find themselves in a lower position. You know, we're going to take salary away from them. And then you see others like Google, who just put out information today, who has a very robust hybrid work environment. They have figured out a little bit of how they would be able to offer you know, these opportunities. And it's one of the reasons why companies like Google that are such trendsetters in what's happening, because they are listening to what's happening in the organization. They're being generative, they're being adaptive, experimental, diverse. And the final element is they're good stewards of the resources they have. So let's let's look at that topic because it is the topic of the day coming back to work. And let me give you a scenario. I'd love to get your feedback on it. So I recently heard a story from a client. So this is first team, this is the, the real deal. The CEO does not get any input from anyone else, <laughs> including any of his reports. Goes off, sits down and makes a decision, comes into the with his report, says, I've made a decision. We're going to go hybrid. Now, first of all, if I was him, my advice to him is don't use that word because he then proceeds to say hybrid means four days in the office, one day at home. Now, that is technically hybrid, but I'm not sure you'd find a lot of people today that would consider that hybrid. They wouldn't feel hybrid. And so that's just what the deal is. And I see like dozens of flaws in that. So not only decision, but how are you seeing leaders process this decision, not just make the decision? Well, the ideal situation is that they involve others and they need to do that because realistically, the workforce today, there's only there's four primary characteristics that people within the workforce actually adopt. These are things that are important to them and it, they transcend all generations. So it's not just generational. You can't just look at it and say, oh, you're a Gen X or a baby boomer or a millennial or Gen Z or whatever. Um, it, it doesn't matter. It's the behaviors of individuals. So if you look collectively at the behaviors. So understanding, first of all, that, that people in the work environment, um, they want to have a collaborative voice. 
They want to know that their voice matters. They want to contribute. They want to be a part of it. So it's a lot of socializing that would occur, meaning that the leader can socialize topics, whether in bite-sized pieces or all at one time and get others to contribute. And the leader can still make the final decision. It's not like they're leaving it to a democracy where it's the, you know, we put it out there and then each of the individuals vote. But the reason you want this collaborative environment, you want a healthy debate. I don't think of healthy conflict. I will tell you now, I disagree with the concepts that say you need healthy conflict in an organization. No, you need a healthy debate. Conflict to me suggests war, and I'm not going to be at war at the other people I'm working with. But I will have healthy debate. I will be able to say, no, I don't see it that same way. Tell me more how you see it that way so that I can understand if I want to see it that way or if I can see it that way. Um, so, so really looking at that collaborative environment. Also understand that people want, they have an entrepreneurial spirit. They want to know, do I have autonomy? Do I have uh, you know, some authority in what it is that you're going to be asking me to do? And you've given me authority through a job description and a salary range. I would hope you would allow me to exercise that authority somehow back to you. And some of that means that you should listen to my advice or at least give me a platform for that, which again, is part of that collaboration. And yeah, so you find those are, I mean, that's really what needs to happen in making these decisions. Otherwise you're going to have it be one-sided. Now, do you find that everybody is, is entrepreneurial in that, in that framework of what you're talking about there? Or is it only certain people that, that feel like they, they want to be heard? Yeah, there's only certain people. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, but my clients are the clients who already are in that realm where their minds are already available mm -hmm. to saying, hey, what can you bring in? What can you do? How can you help me? The client like you talked about before or the individual you talked about before that went off to the roommate, that one doesn't call on me. They didn't even call on their own employees, so they're certainly not going to call me, right? <laughs> and, but they're the ones who need me, right? So when you really think about it, the people who need me the most are the ones who don't call me. The ones who right. kind of have it figured out are the ones who call me, and then I get a chance to work with them and, take, and help them take their organization to places they never thought it would go before. Well, they're in constant improvement. They must want to keep getting better. And I think that's an interesting uh, question, Craig, because what it struck me when you said that was, let's say a third. Let's pick a third. They're entrepreneurial and want to have a say. That becomes the most important group in the collaborative conversation because the other two thirds don't care. <laughs> so those don't care if they're included, but those third, if they're not included, that they'll trash that place culturally yeah. because of the third. Yeah. And I think just to clarify, some of that two thirds, just to make sure that you know, people don't get all you know, thinking about they don't care. So when you use the word don't care, it's not from a sense of apathy, but they have no preference. Right. So therefore, they would be like, yeah, okay, if you invite my voice, I'll tell you. But if not, I'm okay. You know, you can make the choice and decision. But you are correct. Those individuals who want to have a voice, they are very active in having their voice and they want their voice heard. And by the way, this also works in the consumer side. When you think about it, individuals now are looking for organizations that will be more participative within communities, will be a good corporate citizen, will have a difference in what their product or service does for people in general. We, we're starting to see a big shift in, in that. It's not just um, you know, business for profit. It's a balance between profit and people. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. 
BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Welcome back. Well, I want to I want to talk more about culture because you know your book is about cohesion culture. One of your key areas you work on is cultures of cohesion. I want to start here because we've been talking about coming out of COVID, and one thing that I just heard it yesterday again, talking to a client about the work return from work, and I said, "Well, tell me why you feel it's important for people to be back at work a lot in the office." He said, "Well, it's important to our culture." And I said, oh, here we go. So tell me, how does them being in the office support the culture? He looked like a deer in headlights. Like, well, isn't it obvious? I said, well, not to me. Can you articulate to me how being in the office serves culture? I'm not saying it doesn't, but can you tell me? By the end of five more minutes, he said, I can't actually. He said, huh, it's just because that's what I'm used to. Yeah. I said, well, there's the problem. The problem is not so much the decision, but we throw this label, this label of culture on things. Well, we have to preserve it. Well, it's really just the status quo. So can you start with that idea of how do you look at culture right now just around this idea of coming back to work and remote working? Well, the first thing let's do for our listeners is make sure that they understand what I refer to as a cohesion culture, what that means. Perfect. So the three primary elements of that strategic framework are belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment. And why cohesion culture is so important for organizations is because it builds diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is nothing more than a framework that organizes the chaos within a company that's not really sure what it wants to do. It establishes very clear direction, and the rest of it is then up to the organization to customize what they want to do in the areas of belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment. So... In the organization for belonging, it's really about helping people feel like they are a part of something special. Yeah. And it really makes a difference. Like, you know, they're contributing to something. They're, they're really, I mean, people seek out purpose lives all the time. They want to know that what they do matters and makes a difference. So when they belong to something, they want to do it. And so it's about giving a piece of their identity to the group. So when you created the, the culture within an organization in that area of belonging, and that's where we start first. It's all about the customs, rituals, and traditions that the individuals have. That sense of belonging then translates to value. And value is where a person feels like, um, you know, what I'm doing matters. It makes a difference. I know what, what happens if I don't do my job, and I also know positively what happens when I do my job. And so I kind of have that sort of experience happening. And then shared mutual commitments is the opportunity for people to work together for the desired outcomes of whatever that group or organization is. But it must start here. And this is the biggest mistake that organizations make, is that they think sometimes when they've created the employment agreement with the individual, that that's enough. Hey, you're getting a paycheck every two weeks, right? So here's the list of things that you need to do. Here's your job description. You know, here's your pen. Here's the water cooler. Here's the bathroom. Here's your desk and your chair, your, your ergonomically correct chair. And we should be good to go. And but you should just do what I say. <laughs> yeah. But realistically, it all begins 
with the shared mutual commitment that starts when the organization actually commits to the individual first. And that's important because 63% of all employees, not new ones, all employees, 63% of them are seeking growth, development, and advancement. So the very first thing you should be doing is explaining what is the future of where you're going. If you want to, otherwise you're not a learning or a growth-oriented company. You can just be status quo. But guess what? You're hiring people in who want growth, development, and advancement. So you need, and, and by the way, even if they still understand what your value system is when you hire them in, they still want growth, development, and advancement. Sometimes they think they're going to fix it when they get in. So you know that their mindset is already set that way. So you focus that by giving them that first aspect of the mutual commitment comes from the leader first. So the advo- what I advocate is that you as the leader must first think of someone else than self. You don't give up on self, but you think of others first. So when I ask the two of you, if you, the two of you are walking up to a door and you're ready to go in, so how do you reach for the handle? Who, tell me a little bit about your experience of the two of you going into a door when you walk into the door. You, two or three people are together and coming to a door. How do, how, how do, how do you get in the door? Oh, I'm, I'm not going first generally unless, right. um, in fact, I don't usually go first. I open the door for others, pretty much everyone. Depends if the door opens in or out. Oh, okay. So if the door is in, you might lead in and let other people in, and then you let them around you, and then they go. Or if it opens out, you pull it and hold it, and other people go in, right? That's typically what you might think in your mindset. Good. So you're already beginning to practice transformative thinking because transformative thinking requires you to think of someone first and then self. So after that door, did you then go into the space that you opened up, whether you went in first or you went in, did you follow them and go in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, the only time you open the door for people and let them in is when you want to lock them in and, and you don't want them to get out. But in this case, when you're going in with them, you think of others first and then self and self is included in the process. So again, that's so important and organizations miss this. And so then when you think of this culture thing, like you talked to me about before, I just have to ask people, whatever, what did you do before the pandemic? What did you do? So how did you create belonging? And What I will tell you is that organizations that truly believe that the in-person experience is what's needed for their culture is because they've invested so much time and energy in activities that have physical contact Mm. and they have not leveraged an an electronic uh, format. So, and, and, and I will say this, you know, most of the companies in the U.S., they're like so surprised about this whole idea. I mean, like they're all talking about virtual work teams like it's some big thing. Listen, I've worked with companies that's been doing virtual work for 20 to 30 years. They've had teams of people all around the globe. They've never been in the same space in the same room, but I don't think they have a horrible culture, but it is a different culture. And so therefore the question becomes is, what do you want? Will you adapt to a different culture or do you want the one you had before? I'm like, look, I'm not going to complain to you one way or the other, but I'm going to tell you, you can make it happen. You just have to now start thinking a little bit creatively about it. You have to be a little bit more innovative. Yeah. And so, so the innovation process is what will drive much of the way uh, individuals will respond to that scenario. I think that's a really good point. When, when we look at this now and we're saying, okay, do we want to go bring people back to work? Do we, do we have them stay at home? What do we do there? How can we now look at this and say, we have an opportunity to craft the culture the way that we want it to be rather than depending on the way it was. How can we make it even better than it was before, even though we may not be all together? Sure, It can save a lot of money from infrastructure costs and things like that 
but there is a toll. Not being in person is a is different for a lot of people. It is it is different for a lot of people. But you so a couple of things. Number one, you want to include the personal interaction. So you want to make sure that some of that happens. And I've got tips and techniques on how you do it. But the one thing, first of all, is to understand this where you do your work is not a benefit. So working from home is not a benefit. It's just the place where you have your work. Right. And your work environment at home should have some of the same opportunities that you have at the physical location of where the headquarters or where that location is where you went to before. So like, for instance, if people were able to see what they're seeing with me now, they would see that I am in a designated bedroom space with no other activity happening in this room, closed off, private, exactly the way it would be with my office set, set up. If anyone needs me, they would tap on the door or they would create a text to me to say, hey, I need to chat with you. And you would do that. So you have to, so you have to establish some of those protocols and some of those parameters that you want. It's not just loosey-goosey. Like when the pandemic happened, it was like, hey, listen, if you can get into a, a cupboard and open, you know, and, and do your business with your laptop, we're okay, fine. But now <laughs> that things are normalizing, you now want to create a reboarding uh, activity that actually brings people uh, into an understanding that this workspace at home, whatever it is, could have some of the same thought processes behind it as you would if you went into a physical office location. Yeah. What that will mean, though, is that the leader, the supervisor, the individual who's responsible for those folks will now have to actually create meaningful conversations. And in what I found in the virtual space is that those really poor leaders, they show up big time. <laughs> because when they were in the work environment and people were hanging around, guess what? Some of those people's interactions filled in when the boss wasn't quite that, that you know, uh, congenial. You know, they weren't friendly. They didn't sort of ask questions. They didn't, you know, they were very transactional mindset, you know, very focused on what the job was and getting the job done and not thinking about relating at all. Um, and so they let everybody else fill in the gaps. Uh, and they never had to, to show up. Now those leaders have to show up because those other people aren't filling in the gaps. You don't have coworkers necessarily calling other coworkers now to say, hey, let's have a water cooler chat. So what I do organize with companies and to think about is, well, how do you replicate that? You can replicate that virtually. Listen, you, you can do everything. I can do the same thing with you virtually as I can, except I can't physically shake your hand. I can't pat you on the back. I can't, you know, um, you know give you a, a high five or a fist bump. I can't do that in the physical sense, but I can do it through an electronic environment. Uh, well, meeting. Yeah. There's one thing I, I would push back on that, which I think is part of the challenge that a lot of leaders are falling back on. I think there's one thing that can't happen virtually, and that is spontaneous conversation. That, that there's were random. That part, and I'm not saying we do it because of that, but that's the part that too many people are saying, because of that, we have to be in the office. I said, well, no, that's one factor. And, and what I'd really love to hear some feedback on, because we are seeing this everywhere right now, Dr. Choi, and it's rampant, is... In terms of what's the dynamic now, I am blown away every day at how many people tell me, and I challenge them, I'll say, no, literally my entire day I'm on Zoom calls. And I said, I need to understand. Do you mean like a lot? They said, no, from eight to five, I'm on Zoom calls 95% of the day. I go, that's absurd. You didn't have 95% of your day in meetings at the office. I feel like this is organization's 
not being an intentional and their default is to go keep an eye on everybody by having people in meetings all day long. Trust. Because I don't know what you're doing all day. So are you seeing that? And how are you working with companies to get past? Like, what are companies getting done today? All they're doing are meetings. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, it's a philosophy of whether you're managing by time or managing by productivity or performance. And so, it, I mean, there are software tools that can tell you whether people are on the computer or on the time. And you really want to track that you can. There are some. That's um, if you don't trust. Yeah, but there are some. But there are some positions that you need to have that. This is about trust. But like, for instance, in a call center environment, you need to make sure that the individual is being on and doing their job. And you would have done that whether they were sitting at the headquarters building or they were at their home. You still would have said the calls have to drop in. You have to manage your your available time, your non-available time, whatever it is. So that, that so we've got positions like that. Other individuals who might be uh, more sales related and they're actually on Zoom calls from one time to the next. It's possible that if you think about it, maybe they were in conversations on the cell phone before or that they were in conversations, again, physically in a location. Or sometimes those individuals drove for an hour to get to a location. They were on the phone for an hour before they got to the location, had the location, then they were on the phone again for the hour they went back. So the reality is is that, yes, they may not have had eight hours worth of Zoom calls, but they still had eight hours, I bet, of productive sales activity. And some of that is also brought on by the employee. It's not always brought on by the company. The company isn't requiring people to have eight hours of Zoom, but sometimes we tend to do it. I'm the biggest guilty. I'm so guilty of that. I tend to pack my day with activities because I have that flexibility and freedom that I didn't have before, and I like to get things done. So for me, I pack up the day, but I wasn't required to do it. I'm required to accomplish certain levels of work whether I've set them for myself or whether I've set them for organizations that I'm working with. And I think that, again, Craig, you mentioned the word trust before. It's not just about not trusting or putting out extra trust. It's, it's really just a matter of finding our way in this environment where we say, what did we do before? If you didn't stop and check somebody's, somebody at the office, you know, somebody worked in the office next to you, and you never really checked on them. You never opened up the, the, the door and peeked in to see if they were on the phone, eating M&Ms, uh, sitting with, uh, you know, another employee talking or playing cards. I mean, you never paid any or playing solo, solitaire on their phone. If you never did that before. Why does it all of a sudden become so important when you're now in a virtual space? So you want to just set up whatever those habits, protocols, customs, you know, boundaries, whatever it is you want to set up, you just now set it up for a virtual space as well as an in-person. And there are very specific techniques and, and tricks that you can do that will actually create a environment where people can still collaborate. Remember, it's that entrepreneurial spirit, the collaboration and having purposeful work. You can, if you can meet that within the framework of belonging, value and shared mutual commitment, you'll have a strong culture regardless of whether people come into an office and high five each other or whether they spend time like we're doing right now, talking to each other and having a conversation and, and it's seeing, you know, our facial reactions and uh, body language. Well, let me ask you, go down into that again. What I think is, what I see is happening here, Dr. Troy, is so many businesses pre, uh, pre-COVID, so March 1st of 2020, you got, this is how we do business in this box. Now we're going to work from home. 
we take this and we go shove it into a home box. We didn't really change how we think about business. We didn't change how we think about communication. As much as possible, we just took what we were doing and said, now people are distant. And I frankly think it was reactive. And now I look at it as lazy. We've had 15 <laughs> months to figure this out. And I think a lot of people said, well, we'll get back to it. Well, we're not getting back to it. You're going to lose people who want that different environment. And you're going to lose a lot of people. And I don't think you're going to lose them fast because people are still scared. I do think you're going to lose them over time as they get more, they get less afraid and they go, yep, I want, I can go get it over there. Yeah. A different lifestyle. So, sir, you're exactly right. What, what's going to happen with talent and where the opportunity to retain talent may be more difficult is because we've now blown the geographic walls off and individuals can literally work in Charleston, South Carolina for a company that's headquartered in San Francisco. Sure. And it's not going to be as uncommon as it may have been at first. Prior to the pandemic, 6% of the U.S. population was actually working in a remote environment, not necessarily at home, but in a remote environment. These may be people who worked out of airports, their cars, you know, they had uh, on-the-go sort of uh, business connections. When the pandemic hit and we moved everyone, 62% of those wow. employees were now working from a home environment from a kitchen counter, from a third bedroom, or from a closet. And so, and they did that to survive. Businesses needed to do that for organizations to survive. And they did a great job of surviving. And so what happens in that concept, and, and Jeff, when you mentioned about just picking it up and going, there wasn't time to think. So having known that as a leader in an environment, we didn't have time to think, we had time to react. Why? Because we had to protect the safety and security of our employees. We had to make sure that that was fundamental first and foremost, not the profits of the organization, but could we take care of the people? And so we just had to mass send them home. We actually told people, unplug everything that you have that you actually use now, pack it up into a box and take it home. We'll figure it out later. We'll send you instructions on how to rehook it back up, but you just take that with you and go home. So that you could, because why? It's that Maslow's theory. When people have their safety and security under, under threat, they're very, very, you know, they're very closed and focused. You know, they're very myopic in, in, in thinking of what's, what's it for me. I kind of think of it as the concept that they have their head down and looking at their feet, right? If you want to self-actualize, according to the motivational theory, you have to remove the barriers of safety and security and allow the person to self-actualize because now they, they feel that they can a, a, achieve more, they can acquire more because they're no longer threatened. So once their safety and security is protected, then they can do it. It, it was impossible to do it in those past 15 months because stuff was all over the place. You're hearing from the federal government, the local government, and you've got the cranky old guy who's got his theory, and you've got somebody else who has their thoughts and viewpoints on it. And we, there was no single source of getting all the right information. So when the system began to normalize in a way, then organizations could begin to think about it. Um, I did. We did try to help them. When I say we, because I have a colleague of a strategic alliance, and we did some reboarding programs back in January, because we knew that organizations would be thinking about that this year. How do you reboard your employees back into the workforce, and what do you think about to make sure that you have in place so that when those individuals come back, you've got a plan, as opposed to okay, hey, we're all coming back. One big, you know, one big samoy, more by the campfire kumbaya moment. You know, it was actually needed to be real. And what did that look like? Well, what I'm hearing, I don't think you've said this word. Maybe you have, 
is I'm hearing this some theme about intentionality in leadership, in culture. And tell, I guess, is that accurate? Am I hearing that right? This need to be yep. intentional. You talked about having a plan. Part of that yes. is being intentional and thoughtful. Yep. The playing field has changed. I mean, that's the thing. I think some leaders, I think they know, but they don't seem to act like they know. Well, it's it, again, it goes back to, you know, when I talked about the learning organization, it's really you as the individual, you have the same characteristics. So I apply them to the organization, but they're to you. So are you generative? Are you thinking? Are you being adaptive or experimental? You know, do you accept diverse of thought? And then are you a good steward of what you know and what you need to get done? You know, is that happening? And so a leader needs to be purposeful. And I say this all the time. I am not following an accidental leader. I want to follow a leader who is purposeful in what that leader is doing and that they have thought about things. They've kicked the tires. They've included other people's thoughts and ideas before they make a decision. I have no problem following somebody who makes every decision as long as they've listened to others to gain the knowledge and information they need to make a powerful and effective decision that doesn't just benefit the leader, but benefits others first and then self. And when you kind of work in that mindset, when you take all of that that I've said and you start to apply it, then all of a sudden it makes sense in the choices and the decisions that you'll make. Even if you make a mistake, it's okay because it means you've kind of thought about it and you're willing to recover from the mistake because you're not you're not held on some area of, of being perfect. You know, I remind organizations this, the pursuit is in performance, not perfection. You're not going to be perfect. And anytime you hold yourself to being perfect, you make more mistakes than you did if you didn't hold, hold yourself to being perfect. So it's like, let, give yourself a break. You don't know everything. You're not supposed to know everything. You should be involving other people. For the most part, most successful leaders, they will hire people who are smarter than them and get out of the way. So here we sit, Dr. Troy, we're, uh, as of today, we're recording this on what, June 24th, 2021. It's been about 15 months. And I believe, and we believe that what's happening right now is organizations and leaders in those organizations are having to make even more difficult decisions than they made 15 months ago. Because 15 months ago, it was go home. Like you said, we, we just have to do this. But now they're dealing with, now we're coming back. What's our business look like? Craig, you talked about, well, we can save money. Well, but what about the company that just signed a nine-year lease and they've got 100,000 square feet? They're not saving money by having people at home for a while. So there's a lot more factors. What are you telling leaders today? What are the key things you're telling them today to help them navigate a really uncertain time? and probably a new circumstance that many of them have never led through. Well, you know, it, it really and truly does begin with the culture. I know we've kind of thrown that word around a little bit. And, you know, Peter Drucker is credited for saying that, uh, you know, strata, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, I like to think that uh, it actually eats it all day long. So if you're not careful, <laughs> <terrible. laughs> so it's not just for breakfast, it'll just have, your, have its meal any way it wants. So the culture and the reason why that's important is because it's how people work. And I think that what's important is that leaders need to get together to say, how do they want their company to operate? How do they want it to work? And again, there's no one right answer, but you can create a culture that can work for people regardless of whether it's a remote and in-person or a hybrid environment. And that's that cohesion culture. You put the strategic framework over top of your organization. 
And why I get leaders to listen to me is because of this. Cohesion is a causal phenomenon. It's not correlational. It's causal. Say that one more time. Say that again. Yeah. Cohesion is causal, not correlational. So I'm going to give you some example for this. So we're going to talk about rainy days and umbrellas. And so I'm going to give, I'm going to use two examples. So Jeff, I'm going to start with you and say for rainy days, rainy days and umbrellas. So on a rainy day, do you open an umbrella? Generally, no. No, generally, no. Right. No. But, but do you see other people opening an umbrella Absolutely. on a rainy day? Yeah. yeah. Now, have you ever opened an umbrella on a non-rainy day? No, I have not. Have you been to the beach? I do, but I take the risk. <laughs> right, but you see other people yeah, opening an umbrella, correct? Yeah, yes. And when people open an umbrella, it doesn't cause it to rain. And just because it rains doesn't <laughs> cause umbrellas to open. Right. That's called correlational data. That means I can correlate a high probability that more umbrellas will be opened on a rainy day than they would be possibly on a sunny day. Right. And I yeah. can correlate that, and I can use that data to help me make business decisions. The yeah. causal actually predicts behavior. And it's more uh, effective because it's cause and effect. And so you can isolate it. So when an organization applies cohesion through the elements of belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment, they are guaranteed performance every time. The literature, the research has proven that for, for four decades. And in that performance level, you get the level of engagement that you're looking for from your employees. When employees who are loyal, enthusiastic, helpful, We'll go the extra mile. We'll teach other people. We'll just, you know, they've good spirits. They've got good positive energy around them. That's what you get, those individuals. Because when they are cohesively working together, they have given a piece of their identity to the group. And that's healthy. If they gave all of their identity to the group, then we would only be talking about cult and not culture. So when you give a piece of your identity to the group, you create a group identity. And two exciting things happen. Number one, people who belong to a group who truly believe that they belong will fight to keep the group alive and they will ward off external or internal factors that are trying to destroy the group. <laughs> and they will work tireless, tirelessly to accomplish the desired outcomes of the organization because they believe it, because the belief system is so strong in us because it's attached to our values and to our identity. And when we believe something, we can overcome weaknesses that we may not have in talents or skills. And that's another whole theory altogether. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Troy. This is just what we knew it would be. It would be interesting, intriguing, engaging, fun, funny, and wisdom. <laughs> so we always want to wrap up with giving our guests a chance to promote or highlight that something that's going on for you or your business. What is that for you? Well, for me, I would just really want people to continue to uh, look for me in social media at Dr. Troy Hall or find me on my website at drtroyhall.com. Uh, the Cohesion Culture book is a best-selling title. It's still selling great today. We've distributed well over 5,000 units of that book since it launched in uh, 2019, October of 2019, and that was with a pandemic. So it has done really well. And Fannie Rules, of course, this is, uh, you know, it benefits the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, my proceeds benefit the Alzheimer's Association. I would love for people to really pick up that book of Fannie Rules. It also serves as a great, uh, it's a self-development tool. At the end of each of the rules, there's a recap of the teachable moments along with a worksheet. You can either do as a self-reflection worksheet, or you can do it as a mentoring with another individual to help you hold yourself accountable to 
of the things that you may discover with that. And then there's a journal that actually comes along with it. You can download from a special URL, a journal that will help you have 31 days of journaling that also will improve and give you an opportunity to uh, reflect on your life. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Dr. Troy, we always wrap up with a signature question. Today, I'm just going to ask you one. My question to you is, think about movies. Uh, Craig and I are movie folks. Uh, What is the movie or the character or the line or the scene, whatever it is that speaks to you about leadership? So, all right. So there's, I have so many, it's hard to whittle them down into one, but I'm going to go with Indiana Jones (laughs) and I'm going to go with the opportunity to pour into the goblet and to be able to make the choice. And the keeper of the goblet says, choose wisely. And for me, that is it. It's like what you do in life, choose wisely. If you're the individual who wants to choose and go after the solid gold goblet and you do it at all expense to everyone else because that's the way the leadership went, you do that, you're that individual who's going after that, you know what your fate will be when you dip that cup into the water. (laughs) But if you're an individual who thinks more about the way other people need to be taken care of, if you remember that this world is a people-centric world, you can still have profits, you can still have success, but you don't have to run people over to do it, then you're going to dip your goblet, you're going to dip the right goblet into the water, and then you're going to find that you have chosen wisely. I love that. I, that's the first time we've had that one mentioned, yeah. but I am, I'm a little surprised we haven't before because I <laughs> love that scene. I love that line, and I find myself using it in so many places. I, Typically saying, well, you chose poorly. Chose poorly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Troy, and thanks uh, for bringing uh, a little bit of that Charleston magic with you as well. And thanks for all your work you do in the world. Well, thank you. Thank you to Craig. Thank you to you, Jeff. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, uh, it was a really awesome day for me. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, We have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.